Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Since 2012, hundreds of thousands of young people who arrived in the U.S. as children without documentation have been able to get relief from deportation under an Obama-era policy known as DACA. In 2012, the Obama administration announced the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which provides temporary relief from deportation. It also provides work authorization for undocumented young people. In 2017, the Trump administration moved to end the policy. The future of DACA is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court, which will rule on it before the end of their term in June. We talked with Kevin Johnson, the dean and the maybe a polis professor of public interest law and Chicano studies at the University of California, Davis, about the Supreme Court case and the Trump administration decision to rescind DACA. The question before the Supreme Court is, is this rescission, is it lawful uh, or is it unlawful and does it require the Trump administration to deliberate further and go back to the drawing board before they basically get rid of the DACA program. It's, it's actually a, a real big issue uh, for the uh, approximately 800,000 people who received relief under DACA. It, it means that they might be subject to removal from the country, and it means that if DACA is rescinded, they'll lose their work authorization uh, and won't be able to work lawfully. Uh, and for some of these, uh, these folks who are students, uh, it means that if they're not able to work lawfully, uh, that, that will make it impossible for them to get work on campuses known as work study uh, that allows them to continue their education, help fund their education. The Supreme Court heard the arguments last fall, and not that questions from the court are necessarily any predictor of what their ruling could be, but based on the questions of the court, what did it look like they were concentrating on regarding this question? I think they're concentrating on the reasoning offered by the Trump administration for rescinding DACA. The administration said that they believed that DACA was an unlawful policy, uh, but no court had ever found that DACA was unlawful. And a number of immigration law scholars filed an amicus brief friend of the court brief to the Supreme Court saying that DACA is a type of prosecutorial discretion, a type of determination by the government that they're not going to focus on certain groups of people for removal from the country, uh, and that this group of young undocumented people weren't going to be subject to removal. Um, no court uh, concluded that DACA was unlawful. Uh, there were some legal challenges. Uh, including uh, one brought by Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Maricopa County, who claimed that DACA was unlawful. But, but the court, it wasn't a Supreme Court decision, but the lower court said that he didn't have what is known as standing to bring a claim like that. They dismissed the claim. So the issue is now, uh, can the administration say that DACA was unlawful, even though no court ever said it was unlawful, and even though uh, legal scholars say that DACA is a lawful exercise of prosecutorial discretion. Do lower court rulings give any prediction, uh, especially with the makeup of the current Supreme Court and things like that, or are lower court rulings thrown out, for lack of a better term, once the Supreme Court gets involved? 
Well, the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land and can make a final decision uh, on the issue. So far, three lower courts found that the Trump administration hasn't given a good explanation for, for uh, eliminating the DACA policy. And it's up to the Supreme Court to decide, well, has the administration given a, a bona fide reason uh, or hasn't it? If the court finds that DACA can be rescinded, how quickly could that go into effect and how quickly as a result could, for example, students uh, where you are at uh, UC Davis, uh, where we are at the University of Arizona, could they find themselves potentially in line uh, to be removed from the country? If the Supreme Court holds the DACA policy was effectively rescinded by the Trump administration, I think that it, there's a, a, a possibility uh, that all the DACA recipients could lose their relief immediately and could possibly be subject to deportation uh, from the United States. I mean, it's possible the court could write something into the opinion saying that um, there, there'd be some delay, um, but, but I, don't, I don't see that really happening. I see that if the court finds that DACA's rescission was lawful, that could go in effect immediately and going to have immediate um, negative effects on all DACA recipients. Early on in his term, President Trump challenged Congress to pass a DACA law, take it out of the executive order realm. They couldn't get that bill through. Why not? Well, immigration is one of those incredibly divisive issues in our society. Uh, Congress has been considering some kind of immigration reform for well over a decade. Congress has been considering some kind of what is known as the DREAM Act for young undocumented college students uh, for well over a decade. Uh, and um, Congress hasn't been able to reach a consensus on, on uh, these issues and was unable to reach a consensus about whether some kind of DACA law should be passed. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, via Zoom. Good talking to you. That was Kevin Johnson, Dean and Professor of Public Interest Law and Chicano Studies at the University of California, Davis. DACA allowed many young immigrants to legally apply for jobs and go to college. But as Vanessa Ontiveros reports, immigration advocates say in Arizona, the policy was just a single step in a long-standing fight. The start of DACA gave undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children some protections against deportation. But the election of Donald Trump and his aggressive anti-immigration platform highlighted what many immigration advocates, like Carmen Cornejo, already knew. DACA was never going to conquer all the challenges and uncertainties undocumented people face. DACA was not the end, nor the solution. To qualify, DACA applicants had to be between 15 and 31 years old as of June 2012. They must have come to the U.S. before the age of 16 and lived in the country for at least the past five years. Applicants must have been in school or already graduated or have been honorably discharged from the military, and they could not have any felony convictions. A DACA recipient is eligible for a work permit, a driver's license, and a deferral of deportation. In some states, they may get additional benefits like lower college tuition rates or access to state financial aid. Recipients have to reapply every two years. Cornejo says she and thousands of other immigration rights advocates fought for protections like these for years. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and it seems like it, nothing is moving, but at the end of the day, it moves. She immigrated to the United States with her husband in 1991. 
In the early 2000s, Cornejo said she and her colleagues noticed immigration was becoming a subject of national discussion. They began to work more closely with elected officials, including those who introduced various bills to provide a pathway to permanent residency for young undocumented immigrants. These were the early stages of the DREAM Act. Versions of this bill floated around Congress for about a decade, and young undocumented immigrants became commonly known as DREAMers. Cornejo says working with elected officials from other states allowed Arizona activists to partially bypass their own. And, and, and to be honest with you, the, back then the Arizona um, congressional delegation was very not helpful. <laughs> Let's be blunt about it. <laughs> Since the early 2000s, Cornejo says Arizona lawmakers have passed a number of measures targeting the undocumented community. In 2007, Arizona House Bill 2779 punished businesses for hiring undocumented immigrants. In 2010, the state passed one of the harshest immigration laws in the country. The now infamous SB 1070 required law enforcement to ask for immigration paperwork during routine traffic stops and elsewhere. It was partly defanged by the Supreme Court. But when DACA was introduced in 2012, then-Governor Jan Brewer was among the first to issue a statewide ban on granting driver's licenses to DACA recipients. Her ban was later found to be unconstitutional. The laws started to get more and more anti-immigrant, um, which culminated with the 1070. Uh, but it was not a process like the, the 1070 started and bad things happened. It was a process where things were started to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Cornejo says in the early days, it was less common for young or undocumented people to be open about their status or their activism. And also, very few um, of the dreamers started to, to join these conversations because we invited people that we met. We did never ask if this person was a dreamer or not because we were afraid that we would com compromise their situation. Cornejo says activists took care to ensure that undocumented students wouldn't be put at risk by becoming involved. We were really afraid for them, and they were afraid. Those times we were afraid that they would be raided. But the inclusion of more young people into the movement also led to new tactics. Previously, Cornejo and her colleagues had focused heavily on education. Younger activists opted for more direct action. They started to do these sit-downs in congressional offices, which we opposed. <laughs> we were like, ah! <laughs> However, that was the way to do it. I mean, uh, we must give them credit. <laughs> in 2010, after years of revisions and rejections in Congress, a new version of the DREAM Act passed in the House of Representatives. But it failed in the Senate by five votes. Two years later, Obama used his executive branch power to introduce DACA without congressional approval. Though it provided some level of security for hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants in the U.S., Cornejo says it was not a permanent solution. In fact, she says her enthusiasm for advocacy took a hit. She knew that DACA was a band-aid and sooner or later a better system would be necessary. That the solution was the DREAM Act, uh, an act of Congress, right? That was the only solution, the only way that they will have a permanent solution for their situation. And DACA was not a permanent solution. Rena Montoya knows what that fight feels like firsthand. She had just graduated from Arizona State University when DACA was enacted in 2012. Today, she's the founder of an immigrant advocacy group called Aliento in Phoenix. She and other Dreamers had hoped for a more permanent solution like the DREAM Act, 
But she says DACA still made an impact because it allowed people in Arizona to see the people behind the numbers. It's not that they don't know a dreamer. They probably, when they think about a dreamer, they think about Reina, they think about Blanca, they think about Yvette, they think about Angel. Now they have a name that they can think about if they want to support or not, rather than an idea. The Trump administration first announced it would formally end DACA in 2017. Now the Supreme Court will decide if the policy continues. For The Buzz, I'm Vanessa Ontiveros. This week we're discussing DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program implemented by the Obama administration in 2012. DACA in Arizona has faced a lot of uncertainty over the years, but the coronavirus pandemic has added a new layer to that experience. Elisa Resnick follows the story of how the crisis is affecting local dreamers, as DACA recipients are called, and how they're coping. Blanca Sierra Reyes has gotten used to dealing with uncertainty at work. I work at a hospital, so it's been extra scary just working there, um, coming home to my family and not knowing if I like may have potentially been in contact with COVID. As a hospital social worker in Phoenix, she's usually helping patients prepare for the next phase of their recovery. But the coronavirus has changed her day-to-day. While doctors and nurses tend to COVID-19 patients, Reyes is preparing their families for the possibilities. You don't know how their symptoms are going to be, if one day they're going to be okay on just oxygen, or next day they're going to be intubated. And we have to be uh, talking to family regarding what their wishes are, what the next plan may be. But Reyes also deals with another kind of uncertainty as a DACA recipient. The Trump administration moved to end DACA in 2017, and legal battles ensued. Now, as the Supreme Court's ruling looms, the fate of some 650,000 Dreamers is on the line. And like Reyes, thousands of them are also finding themselves on the front lines of the pandemic. Almost 30,000 Dreamers work in healthcare nationwide, according to a new report by the Center for American Progress. More than three times that number work in other frontline jobs like teaching and food service. About 7,000 frontline Dreamers are in Arizona. They risk their family's health to keep the rest of us safe. So now is the time more than ever that we need to stand with them and protect them during these awful times. Lawmakers like Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer argue those numbers prove DACA recipients make up an integral part of the workforce. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the DACA case last year. In April, immigration lawyers filed a brief highlighting the role DACA recipients are playing during the pandemic. In Arizona, Dreamers and their supporters have also been speaking up. Earlier this month, activists held a car demonstration in front of the Phoenix Office of Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Office of Attorney General Mark Burnovich. He has joined a brief in support of the Trump administration's move to end DACA. Some things have changed for DACA recipients in the wake of COVID-19 in Arizona. They are now eligible to receive unemployment benefits. Some are also eligible to receive a stimulus check. But it gets complicated. A lot of families who have a loved one who doesn't have uh, proper documentation or a valid social security number, unfortunately, they, they didn't receive, receive the federal support. That's Reina Montoya. She's a DACA recipient and the founder of an immigrant aid group in Phoenix called Aliento. She says many DACA recipients are part of mixed immigration status families. But undocumented people aren't eligible for stimulus money from the federal government, and they're not eligible for state unemployment in Arizona. 
DACA recipients who file taxes as part of those mixed immigration status families are also blocked. Montoya says that means hundreds of families aren't receiving the safety nets others are getting during the crisis. That's why her group started raising their own money to bridge the gap. A fund is specifically for mixed-status families and immigrant families who were left out from the federal funding from the CARES Act, and we were overwhelmed by the generosity of people. Montoya says the fund has raised over $100,000 so far, enough to give over 200 families a $500 check to keep them afloat. Arizona has a long history with immigration and with DACA fights. Recipients in the state are not eligible for things like in-state tuition and were initially not allowed to get a driver's license. Montoya says seeing the community support now gives her hope and makes her feel like attitudes have changed. Still, she says it's bittersweet, knowing the Supreme Court could end DACA in the coming weeks. Now I've seen really like older folks who never met a dreamer like asking me how can they help me to, for me to stay in this country. And, and yet on the other hand, I see... Uh, politicians and inaction who refuse to come up with a solution. Phoenix social worker Blanca Sierra Reyes and her family received some of the Aliento Fund. They are an example of the complex reality Arizona families are facing. Her parents are undocumented. She is a DACA recipient, and her two young sons are U.S. citizens. Growing up, she said her parents were always upfront with her about the family's immigration status. Now, as the DACA decision hangs in the court... She tries to do the same with her sons. I have to explain to him, like, I was born in Mexico. You were born here. And um, I can't I can't have a residency or citizenship because of that. And so he understands the, the fear behind it. It's scary because I don't want him to ever feel it. But I know it's important because he is learning. Rhea says she tries not to worry about the possibility of losing her status. But she hopes by being honest with her sons, they'll be better prepared to deal with the uncertainty the family faces during the coronavirus pandemic and after it's over. I'm Elisa Resnick, Arizona Public Media. Thanks to KJZZ's Matthew Casey for the protest audio in that piece. Leon Rodriguez was the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services from 2013 to 2017, the years immediately following the start of the DACA policy. We asked him how he thinks the agency would respond if the policy is struck down by the court. He says a lot will depend on how the court strikes it down. So you can expect that over some period of time, there will certainly be a halt in the granting of new benefits uh, by USCIS. And possibly there is even a risk of Uh, terminating uh, the DACA benefits, employment authorization in particular, of terminating those uh, benefits based on on the decision. I mean, I think that in and of itself will be a big question. Will they let people just finish out their existing term or will they move proactively to terminate those terms if, in fact, the Supreme Court strikes down the program? If they do strike it down and the court rules that all terms are terminated immediately or within a very short period of time, people are not allowed to serve out the rest of the time that they have been granted um, under DACA. How quickly can the government move to start, for example, deporting people? That's why DACA existed in the first place. The government doesn't actually have the capacity to deport even a small fraction of of the DACA population. 
Uh, I mean, there are, you know, given especially the, the immigration policies of this administration, their uh, deportation capacity, their detention capacity, their immigration court, uh, court capacity has all been fully extended. Uh, in fact, you could actually expect the government to move exceedingly slowly, uh, if at all, uh, to be deporting this population. And that's just because of the reality of, uh, of tracking down people and moving through the system? It, it's because of the, the reality that uh, even under the current administration, which has obviously taken a much more aggressive immigration enforcement approach than the prior, any, any prior administration, the fact is that you need immigration officers, you need detention officers, you need judges in order for people to be deported. Uh, if anything, actually, DACA recipients are pretty easy to track down. They're signed up with the United States government. Their addresses are known, their places of work are known. Uh, and that's a, that's a risk um, that you know, those, those individuals took at the time that they enrolled in DACA, believing that the, a day like this would never actually come. Not that I would ever ask anyone to predict what the Supreme Court would do, because that's usually uh, a losing bet. But is it possible that they could, based on the times we're living in, for example, make exceptions for DACA recipients who are in the healthcare industry right now, nurses, doctors, uh, things like that, uh, because we need the capacity in the healthcare industry, for example? I don't... Um see where the court actually would undertake itself to make those kinds of distinctions. Uh, what it could do, one possible way that it could decide the case is to tell the federal government, you know, you can do what you want. And, and so if you want to uh, protect a certain pop, you know, certain segment of that docking population from deportation and to let them continue working in their, you know, essential uh, professions. That, that is, that is a, a direction that I, I could potentially see the Supreme Court taking. You were director of USCIS from 2013 to 2017, kind of the heart of, of a lot of this. What did you think about DACA and the way it was implemented? You know, I think the main thing I always thought about DACA, I met, I met a lot of wonderful people who were DACA recipients. Uh, and, and that was one of the things that, you know, certainly uh, made me feel, you know, I felt good about it and that it existed in the first place. I great, felt great about it as I met, you know, not, not just, you know, young people who went, went to and graduated from medical school or law school, but people who also just found a way of making a living and supporting families and, you know, being a positive members of the community. Uh, so I certainly felt good about DACA that way. But probably the, the, the most persistent feeling that I had about DACA is that DACA should never have been seen as a replacement for a path to US citizenship. And it should have never um, been a way for our political system, meaning Congress and the president, to escape finding uh, a more permanent resolution to the situation of undocumented people in this country. And what I further you know, realized was, you know, I worked with uh, ICE, they were my partners in the work that I did at, at the Department of Homeland Security. They don't have the capacity, never will have the capacity to uh, remove 11 million people, even if those 11 million people were begging to be escorted to the border and returned to their countries of origin. 
And so, you know, hopefully soon enough, we'll get real about that fact and find a more permanent way, a legislated way of dealing uh, with these things, because DACA was a, was a Band-Aid in a way, uh, in, in lieu of what should have been a much more comprehensive and thoughtful and permanent solution. Being a, a town, Tucson, close to the border with a long history uh, tied to Mexico, we hear a lot of support for DACA in our neighborhoods. Who's against it? It seems like even when I talk to people in the nation's capital and have for many years, everybody says, oh, the DACA recipients, they're not here through any of their own doing necessarily. So who's against this? You know, so it's a combination of, of people and a combination of, of motivations. I mean, in, interestingly enough, the way, the way DACA was drawn as it was and, and the way, for example, uh, it, the reason, for example, that it was not initially uh, challenged by state's attorneys general and, and, and that sort of thing uh, is because it actually did enjoy pretty broad bipartisan popularity and has continued to. Um, that said, there is some um, uh, hostility toward it uh, among those, for example, who view it as uh, both promoting and rewarding uh, illegal uh, immigration by those who feel that, um, you know, we really shouldn't be promoting uh, immigration at all. If anything, our country has too much immigration and we should have less and who are, are probably the most ardent opponents of DACA. All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking some time to uh, talk with us. Pleasure to talk to you guys. That was Leon Rodriguez, Director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services from 2013 to 2017. Research by the center-right nonprofit American Action Fund estimates that DACA recipients have a net positive fiscal impact of $3.4 billion each year and contribute nearly $42 billion to the annual GDP. In a 2018 memo, the group wrote that physically removing DACA recipients would cost between $7 and $21 billion. We reached out to several lawmakers who have opposed the DACA policy in the past, but none were able to grant interviews. In an amicus brief filed by 13 state attorneys general, including Arizona, the AGs argued DACA is, quote, substantively and procedurally unlawful. They made that argument because they say it exceeds executive authority granted under two federal immigration acts. They argue the Trump administration's decision to rescind DACA was correct. You can read the amicus brief on our website. The U.S. Supreme Court will release its ruling on the validity of the Trump administration's decision to rescind the policy sometime in the next month. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.